Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. And there's a crime theme to this week's show. Our featured guest is Geetha Lodge talking about her new psychological thriller, Little Sister. Phil Johnson talks about his debut crime novel, Killer in the Crowd. And historian Vic Gatrell discusses his examination of real-life crimes, Conspiracy on Cato Street, A Tale of Liberty and Revolution in Regency London. Geetha, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment, but first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Oh, it's lovely to be here. And as I say, a kind of crime theme to this week's show. Crime is your genre, psychological thriller. I'm not quite sure what the difference is. Mm. Uh, Was it always going to be your genre? I think I was always destined to write crime at some point. I mean, I read absolutely everything, and I have actually written fantasy and um, young adult before as well, but I've very drawn to crime, having grown up with Agatha Christie as a, as, as a mainstay and then Dorothy Sayers and then and then some really dark stuff as well. Well, I say dark. It was pretty dark for a sort of 11, 12-year-old to be getting into Ian Rankin and Val McDermott and people. So I apologise for the fact that I've turned out the way I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not, it's not done you too badly, has it? And psychological thriller crime there, I suppose the difference is, and that's certainly true of your novels and particularly this latest one, you're in the head of a, mm. at least one protagonist. Yes, I really enjoy having the police procedural side on the one hand and then really contrasting that with being in the head of someone who's really directly involved in the crime. And in previous books, it's generally been someone who has been a victim and who has been quite involved in a rather sad way. In this one, so Keely Lennox, who is the 16-year-old protagonist, she's a bit different because she is very controlling. She's very dominant. She turns up at the beginning of the book covered in blood and says that she won't tell them where her little sister has gone until they listen to her. She's not simply a victim, but there is a lot of complexity to the story that she tells, where she's both controlling and possibly also crying for help. We just never know at any given point. So it was really, really good fun getting into the head of someone who has had a lot of very difficult and damaging things happen to them and asking what is it that makes a psychopath basically. And what makes a good crime novel? I ask myself this quite a lot. (laughs) I think it's made up of all sorts of things but for me what really swings it is really caring about the characters within. If I can really believe in them and really get into their heads and be invested in them, whether it's about a really small part of their lives, something apparently insignificant but that means a lot to them, such as, I don't know, the shop that they own, or whether it's about something huge such as a big affair or the loss of someone they care about, that's what really draws me in. And the thing I really like to do with all of my books is to take fairly you know, standard people often, but put them in a really very extreme situation and then see how it all falls out, just sort of watch the interactions, because I think that's where people are often at their most fascinating. And there's been a lot of talk recently about the ethics of crime novels, Mm. about putting women in jeopardy, women as always the dead bodies, something that you're aware of as a writer. Absolutely. It's a very difficult one to grapple with because women are essentially so often the victims. It seems a little bit false to portray it in a different way. If most of my books were absent of female victims or very much centred men as the victims, it wouldn't be a very accurate reflection of what generally happens. However, I think to make it at all glamorous is a real fault and a mistake. 
And the thing that I really think is important is to make sure that we really, really care about those victims, that in every case you mourn for anyone who's had anything bad happen to them, whether it be you know an assault, a robbery, or at the extreme end, which is often what I'm dealing with, there's been a murder. One thing that can happen quite easily in thrillers is that there's a quiet patch in the book, so someone throws in another dead body, and I think that is such a huge shame, because it's never a dead body. That is a person, that is a life, that is all of the people they know and the huge impact on them. And for anyone who's ever lost anyone, obviously that's an enormous deal, we all know that. And I think it's a real shame to sort of sanitise that. And that's where I come down on that whole debate. Well, we'll be talking about uh, Little Sister in just a moment, but let's hear your first choice of music now. Is music important to you, Geetha? It's hugely important. I often use it as the way I get into the, the right mood for writing. And uh, also because I write a lot in coffee shops, it's fairly reliable that at some point during the day there'll be some sort of loud goings on which are a bit distracting. And my headphones and my music are therefore a brilliant way of absorbing myself back in what I'm trying to do. But what I always start with is something really upbeat that is going to get me feeling really determined and like someone who can sit and write thousands of words in a day. And this is one of my absolute favourites. It's a classic. The Flash Gordon theme, written by Queen from the film. And this not only is a wonderful piece of music, but it also reminds me so strongly of my days when I used to write for the Girton Players when we put on a completely hectic and crazy parody of Flash Gordon at the Mumford Theatre. And it reminds me uh, of hanging out with two people we've since lost, uh, the wonderful Dave Peat and Richard Austin, who were brilliant chair and secretary of the society, uh, who I loved to bits, and who were huge supports to me as a writer as well. So it's just such a brilliant one for me in so many evocative ways. And that was the theme to Flash Gordon by Queen, the first choice of music on Bookmark today by our featured guest, Geetha Lodge. Geetha has, has, we've heard, a background in theatre and drama, but her debut novel, She Lies in Wait, was published in 2019 and introduced us to a detective and hero, Jonah Sheens. It became a Sunday Times bestseller and was a Richard and Judy book club pick. Watching from the Dark came out a year later and this year has seen the publication of two more books in the Sheens series, Lie Beside Me and the one we're discussing today, Little Sister, which is literally just out. So reviews are coming in as we speak, but for what it's worth, I enjoyed it very much. I'll give you the first one. We will be talking about Little Sister, but two novels in a year. That's lockdown related, is it? It's an interesting one. So the hardback actually came out over a year ago. So it came out last February. But then because of lockdown and also because of my fabulous editor going on parental leave, we pushed the paperback to this year. So there's been a really big gap between hardback and paperback of that one and then a really short gap between the paperback of that and then book four coming out. And actually, that's been lots of fun because it's meant that while everyone's getting into the paperback, you know, you always get more readers with the paperback. I've been able to say to them, well, the next one's out really very soon. And it's very exciting. And I feel like there's a lot of momentum there to really drive forward into book four. So it's been a lot of fun. It is very exciting. So tell us what's uh, Little Sister about? As I say, it's just out. It's the fourth in the series, but you can pick any of them up anywhere. I really think that's very important. You should be able to start wherever you want. So Jonah Sheens, who's our main detective, um, is having a quiet pint in a country pub. And uh, he's taking a, a little break with his uh, baby daughter. And into this idyllic scene in the sunshine comes a 16-year-old girl who is completely covered in blood and is somehow ex- still extremely calm, collected. He goes to ask if she needs his help because he sees that as his role. She smiles at him and she says that she's absolutely fine, but that her younger sister is the one he should be worried about. And then when he asks 
what happened to her sister, she says. She's not going to tell him that just yet. What then ensues is a real cat and mouse game because Keeley is extremely smart. She's extremely manipulative and she's very willing to play games. She wants to be heard, but it's very unclear to Jonah whether she's telling a story in order to dangle them all for her own ends or whether she wants to tell this story of her time in care with her sister and all these really quite heartbreaking things that happened to them because she needs to be heard. So it's a very complex issue for him. There are various accusations that have happened where she has in the past said that people have been variously abusing her, her sister, etc., all of which have been apparently disproven. She claims that they were true. But there's always been another side to it in each case that makes it look like she's been manipulating. So it's really complex. A lot of it is about who we believe. It's about whether or not we can believe someone who is a psychopath, essentially and ultimately about how much he should or shouldn't play into her game. And as you say, it's gripping cat and mouse stuff. And it kind of centres around a lot of it around the police interview, Mm. which uh, if you watch um, crime dramas, it's the staple of crime dramas and often the most enjoyable bits. If you look at something like Line of Duty, everything revolves around it. It does. And I think those can be so much fun. And actually, this is the first one, really, where someone has been able to run rings around Jonah in return because he is very, very good in an interview. It's something he learned from his own dad, who was basically abusive. But there are a lot of really good techniques that abusers have in terms of tearing someone down when they need to or suddenly offering kindness when it suits them. It's manipulative. And Jonah, despite the fact that he sort of hates it about himself, rather, he's very good at it. And suddenly he finds himself confronted with someone who is only 16 years old and yet is just as good at it as he is, if not better. It's very difficult. That tension was an awful lot of fun to play with, particularly also because what becomes apparent is that as well as the story she's telling, she is hiding clues in everything that she says. That means that there are clues there for the police to solve, but also for the reader to solve. And I think knowing how I love to solve a puzzle, I love a wordle and I I love a crossword, (laughs) I love a cryptic crossword. I had an awful lot of fun hiding those in there and knowing that readers will be able to solve them for themselves. And actually, I will also say, because I haven't really said this yet, there is actually a clue in there that remains unsolved by the police, which I'm inviting readers to solve. I will be telling everyone I've got a very cool prize for the first person who gets it right. (laughs) Yeah, because she's talking to us. It's the first person, the chapters where she talks are first person. So we feel very much that she is addressing us as well. Yes, absolutely. I'm hoping it does feel very personal because it's all done in the form of her recounting her story absolutely so once she sort of settles into a rhythm she tells these different sections of her story which are very carefully prepared very planned so we sort of find ourselves maybe a little bit distrustful of that in itself and yet they're incredibly compelling and they're quite heartbreaking at times so it's hopefully quite conflicting. And as you mentioned the start of the book there, where she enters a, a pub garden basically covered in blood, very dramatic. It's important for a crime novel to have that punch at the beginning. I think so. I mean, I know there are some which are slow burns, which don't have that. But for me, I just know that when I pick up a book, if it really does sort of hit me hard in that first chapter, it's going to really make it very difficult for me to put down. And I just love in those very first pages that shiver down the spine. That's what I'm always trying for. And I think it's always where I start out with a book as well. So certainly, certainly with The Force so far, that opening scene has been the key in every case. In Lie Beside Me, it was poor Louise turning over in the morning and waking up and finding there's a dead man next to her and she's never met him before. And in, in this one, it's that scene with Keely and the blood. And I just think that those scenes really make it for me.
And it interrupts, as you say, family time that he's spending with his daughter, which is a sort of a bigger metaphor, really, isn't it, mm. for what's, what's going on, how he's trying to balance his personal life and his professional life, mm. because his life has moved on since the last book. It has. It's become very complicated for him. So he got himself into a slightly difficult situation in, in the last book, because having moved on and pursued a, a new relationship, which was making him very happy, he was then dragged back into his past with his ex-fiancée by a one-night stand, which turned into this new daughter, and he's had to now work out what he's going to do about that. And it was a devastating decision to have to make, because... You know, it's not that he doesn't still have some feelings and love for his ex-fiancée, but he really does love Jojo, who's the woman that he was then in a relationship with. He's sort of loved her since he was a teenager. She's been the one he's idolised for a very long time. And feeling that he can't necessarily be with her because of what he's done is, is really tough. But I think that those sorts of decisions that we have to make in life as grown-ups, they do happen. You know, sometimes we don't find ourselves able to make the decision that we really want to because sometimes the right decision seems to be somewhere else. It's hard for him trying to negotiate that and also trying to make sure that Michelle, who's his ex-fiancée, still feels loved and supported. They are a team bringing up this child. That's very complicated too. So it's um, it's it's a bit of a mess, really. <laughs> and what about you in terms of trying to balance his story with the crime story? Mm. How much of that do you put in compared to the crime? Is there a perfect ratio to it? Yeah, I think I tend to end up putting a little bit too much backstory in. And every time my editor is saying to me, it's a little bit too backstory heavy, you might want to maybe shift a bit of this to the next book. This happens a lot. We shift a lot <laughs> to the next book quite often. So you know, I'll want to be pursuing backstory stories with all my detectives all the time and then it will so slightly slow the action but actually I do think the case is very important in each case it's not that you know we're just reading for the backstories and the case is a side note the case is absolutely core and at the heart of the book getting the balance of those two is quite delicate and I think I tend to get it wrong but my editor gets it right <laughs> and in terms of getting the police procedural information right so you've, yeah. you've you've got a little tame contact is that right I so. have he's brilliant wonderful uh, Christopher Haynes so he's a metropolitan police officer and he's absolutely brilliant I message him and he will normally reply very quickly with not only the answers to the questions that I'm asking but also a huge load of extra information about things I didn't even know to ask about, which is always so useful, but also really inspirational because there's elements of the way the police work that then you think, my goodness, how cool would that be for that to happen in this or in another book? And so it's just wonderful, not just, you know, not just an answer, but a really you know, revealing answer. And of course, there are some things, you know, that he won't be able to tell me because, you know, some of them more sort of secret size. So we venture in this one actually into the kidnaps of teams and the red desk, the people who do the really urgent stuff. Certainly he was saying to me, you know, there are some things that wouldn't be appropriate to share because there need to be some ways of people being found and criminals being brought to justice, which aren't public knowledge. But, you know, as much as possible, he helped me make it real and showed me the bits that are more public knowledge. And it was terrific. Now, the forensic stuff is always fascinating, isn't yeah. it? And now, of course, you've got all the mobile phone data yes. pickup as well, which is always really interesting. It's great fun. And actually, of course, the thing is, it makes it quite difficult for a person trying to hide from the police or wherever. It's actually quite a complex business if you look into it. It's not even as easy as turn your phone off. You know, that's the funny thing. It's much more complicated than that. The nice thing about it is it makes you think, well, someone would probably be brought to justice quite quickly. But when you're writing someone like Keely, who's left this big trail and who's genuinely hidden her sister extremely well, it makes it really quite hard to do it right. 
<laughs> oh well, thank you, Gita. Well, let's uh, let's stay, as we say, with crime and hear from Phil Johnson now. Phil is a former BBC Look East and ITV Anglia reporter, producer, and newsreader. He was the face and voice of Crime Stoppers on TV across the Anglian region for several years and presented cover story on Anglia TV. Killer in the Crowd is his first novel. And when I spoke to Phil, I asked him to tell me what it's about. Uh, well, the story begins when school teacher Kath Edgley hears shocking news that fading rock star Raven Rain has been murdered. And to Kath, Raven is more than just a picture on a magazine. He's also the ex-lover of a missing mother, Betsy Black. She was lead singer of the 80s punk girl band Decolette. Now, poor old Kath is determined. He always wondered whatever happened to her mother. But warned by a string of mystery text messages to trust no one, she didn't aspire to solve the mystery of her mum's disappearance once and for all and find out who killed Raven Rain. Now, along the way, she finds herself in a new role. She's the unwitting replacement lead singer for her mum's old band. So can Kath find the killers before she becomes the next victim? And are the superstars she encounters all they seem? And what really happened to punk superstar Betsy Black? So it's a very fast-moving mystery thriller. There's a couple of sort of subplots in it, really. One is that you get the old band Decolette reforming. So you've got these all women now in their late 50s, early 60s, who reclaim their punk persona to go back on stage. Because I kind of got this thing that age is no barrier. And the idea of these four women going back on stage and performing as they were, I think is terrific. There's a bit of a love story. Will they want the love story running through it as well? But I'm not really much away. And although it looks very grim for Kath en route, Rest assured, there's what I call a Hollywood ending. So it's a crime thriller. Given that you're a news reporter for local TV stations, voice of crime, stoppers, etc., was it sort of inevitable, Phil, that you would end up writing a crime novel? I think so. I did a fair bit of working with the police and got to know procedures a bit, and I, I had a lot of crime stuff. Crime, in a way, helps the best thrillers because people love a good murder and a good mystery. Yeah, I th- think that, that kind of came out. And given that you have seen the effects of crime firsthand and spoken to the people who are battling this on a daily basis, how much liberties then do you take when you're writing about that? Because you'll have seen that it can be devastating. Oh, absolutely. And I think that devastation comes across, especially with some of the things that, that come out. The bad guys are bad, but they're not Nordic noir, scrape people's eyes out with a spoon bad. They're kind of bad, yeah, will kill you, but they're not horrible. So it's not unpleasant bad, although there's some unpleasant crimes involved. But it's, yeah, it's kind of mystery thriller, really, in that sense. So it's lightish on crime, although the crime's seriously there. You know, there are murders, there are other things as well. And I love that you've got the 80s music scene in there. Sounds like you have a real fondness for it. A lot of people do have, who were there at the time and even those who weren't. Yeah, I mean, this was kind of inspired by when I was a a student way back in the late 70s at Leicester University. I was on the entertainment committee. I saw at the time punk was really exploding. I saw backstage and, and helped put on bands like Jam, The Stranglers, Elvis Costello, Generation X, Ian Jury. So I kind of saw all those bands coming through when they were all young, really, and uh, got that feeling for it. You know, artists like Chrissy Hind and Debbie Harry really admired them. And they did so much to sort of uh, fight their way through because it was very much a male-dominated music industry as you know, and a lot of women were terribly exploited. And there's a lot of that in this book. And it kind of shows that they broke out and they established themselves as singers in their own right, not just a pretty face to front of band. And I think that's really important. And given that you had that background in crime reporting, which helped you presumably when you're writing the crime parts of the novel, how did you research the music industry side? Well, I've got a very good friend, old university friend, who is a leading agent 
he represents a lot of bands and a lot of 80s bands as well as current bands. He represents people like uh, Belinda Carlisle, Human League. You know, he's got a lot of bands in his stable as well as some current bands, 1985, The National. So I got him to read an early draft and I said, can you just check for me that um, I've got no, nothing wrong here? And the interesting thing is there's a lot of concert appearances in this and a lot of points of view because it's written in first person from Kath Edgley's point of view. And when she goes on stage and the reaction of being on stage and I wanted to check that things haven't changed that much because I've been backstage a lot in front of stage as a reporter and a producer. But he said one thing wrong. He said these days drum tech is massive. You've got people who study this and they come up and they'll get the drummer and they'll measure the distance between their arms and cymbals and the seat of the drum and everything else. And it's a real technical thing to set it up. Whereas in the old days, you'd get the drum kit, get the stool, sit on it and hit it. <laughs> Very different now. And this is your debut novel. What have you learned writing this novel? Oh, wow. Well, I've learned that um, it's a really, really difficult process. I mean, like a lot of writers, especially journalists who became writers, I was used to writing new scripts and factual and obviously writing fiction is very different and I've also learned that it's a very long hard road to get published you know I got so many publishers and agents saying really close but just not quite there you know some of them will hold the manuscript for nine months but I learned that editing is vital and I found a really good editor and I also learned that workshopping with other writers is essential I have a small group of other writers, including published authors, and we workshop our material. We send each other a chapter every week, we print it, and we work together. And, we, you know, they're all different genres. And that really helps as well. And also, I think, feedback from other people. I mean, I'd interviewed in the past a, a lovely guy, Steve Harley from Cockney Rebel, and I emailed him saying, would you review this for me? And he said, yeah. That helped enormously because he's a real singer who was out there in the 70s and the 80s, and he still is, he's still touring. Yes, because you've been using words for all of your career to tell a story, but a factual story. This time you're using them to tell a fictional story. So some of the same skills and some different ones. That's absolutely right. I mean, I've always loved communicating and broadcasting. I used to present a breakfast show on BBC Radio Norfolk in the 80s. I've loved communicating, loved broadcasting, loved getting in people's homes and telling them things. And now I just want to tell exciting stories People could enjoy. And I think we need a bit of escapism these days. And this is built for sort of, you know, holiday reads and rainy nights and afternoons and sunny days in the garden in a deck chair. And it's exciting tales, taking people to romantic locations and exciting times, really, but knowing it's going to work out in the end. Is that why you think crime is so popular? Because it's the most popular genre, isn't it? What is it about crime thrillers that intrigues readers? People love to see a bad guy go down. They want an ending, and unfortunately, real-life crime isn't always solved, and they like to see the underdog win through, and that's what I've really played on here. My Kath, she really is an underdog, an ordinary teacher in a school. The world seems to go against her. She has to really fight. There are people after her, her and her band of women who are older punks come back and they get out there, and it's, it's kind of winning through against the odds. And so what's next for you now? Well, my second novel, Run to the Blue, which is about a TV reporter, running to Greece to escape killers and spies, being rescued by an enigmatic, mysterious American yachtsman, is due out at the end of June with the same publisher. I have a third story set in the world of TV drama coming out next year, and the publishers are interested in a sequel to the second story, which is coming out in June. And I think the secret is people say write about what you know, and I've written largely about TV 
being on stage and music and things like that. And um, hopefully that will come across. And hopefully the sort of experiences of, of being on stage and, and things myself are coming across in this book and the experiences of being a TV reporter will come across in the next book as well. And Killer in the Crowd by Phil Johnson is published by Burning Chair Publishing. We're speaking on Bookmark today to Geetha Lodge about her psychological thriller, Little Sister. And Geetha, you were saying that book sounds right up your street. Absolutely, absolutely. Not only, I mean, the punk rock scene for one thing, but also I love the idea of it being written by someone who knows it from the inside and who's researched it. So, I mean, I'd love to know what goes on behind the scenes of these band tours and particularly went on back then and that, you know, he's met so many of these really iconic figures when they were younger. I think it sounds wonderful. And I'm so behind a group of women who are that bit older getting back on stage and just owning it. I think it's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And and research in your novel. So you would have had to research the care system, presumably, because there's a lot about that. And sibling relationships, because that's pretty central to it as well. Yes. So so the care system, I got some help with that from a particular individual who used to work in the care system. That was terrific. It's a difficult one because also I didn't want to present it unfairly because a lot of the care system, you know, does function very well. It's not that everybody who goes through it finds it horrendous because the experiences these girls suffered were very hard. But it is a system that is underfunded. It is a system where there can be difficulties and where we we do know there have been abuses. It's particularly hard when you want to present the fact that actually there were brilliant social workers working in there, there are brilliant key workers working in there. But actually the experience of these girls could still have been terrible, potentially. And I wanted to give that sort of some fairness. So I almost wanted to put an apologetic note in to say, you know, for everyone who's working in there who is brilliant, this isn't you. <laughs> Siblings are an interesting one, I suppose. I'm, I have my own sort of sibling relationships to draw on. They're not quite the same. <laughs> I mean, I have a very strong-willed older sister who is, uh, she's not quite a Keely. She's very brilliant, though. She's uh, she's probably equally smart. Then I have a younger sister as well. So I get to experience both being you know, an older and, and a younger sister. And I, and I think the dynamics are a lot of fun. It's something I went into in She Lies in Wait as well, that older, younger sibling, and how, how each feels about the other and whether they feel they're a drag or whether they resent them. You know, Because it's, it can be very easy for jealousies to build up. And the problem for Keely is that she's got a sister who is in many ways liked better or more brilliant or or at least that she perceives to be. The other trouble between the two of those is that they both very much like the same boy. And this is actually key to why things really go wrong between them, because it's very hard to deal with being really very much in love with someone that you consider a soulmate when you see them with your sibling and trying to deal with that is a core part of of, um, what causes a big falling out. There's only a little bit of uh, sort of personal experience in some directions in there but also that just generally those sorts of you know frustrated or resentful feelings you can have towards sisters I think are fairly fairly universal. It rang true. I mean, I've got two daughters and it <laughs> rang, I mean, not quite as extreme as that, but it rang true. I wonder if it is particular things between girls as well. I do wonder. And I wonder if, you know, societally, we sort of inadvertently bring girls up to see each other more as competition. And I, it does worry me, you know, and I think it's such a shame if we do do that. I do hear sometimes, you know, people talking, particularly when, you know, there's a situation where someone perceives their male partner to be interested in another woman, they tend to want to blame the other woman for this situation and see the other woman as competition. And I think that's such a shame. It's wrong that we should ever feel we are competing for the male gaze and that actually what we should be all doing is really lifting each other and supporting each other. But it's hard because societally we do get this a lot. We get this in TV, we get this in, in everything we're absorbing that somehow, you know, we have these best female friendships, but also, you know, oh, they might steal the guys. I wonder how much easier it would be if we could kind of somehow just gently nudge all that aside and just be 
girls together? An interesting feminist question. <laughs> An interesting feminist question. Well, we'll think about it while we're listening to your second choice of music, actually. Odyssey by Rival Consoles. I love uh, Rival Consoles' music, particularly to write to. Partly the fact that he doesn't tend to use words with his music, which is fantastic because it just means I can be in the mood and you know, without anything kind of interrupting so verbally with anything I'm writing. So I'm really in the zone. It's perfect. But also there's just such a wonderful sense of driving rhythm and mood to it um, that makes me first of all feel like really writing fast which is uh, extremely useful at various points in a draft Um, and also that makes me feel that I'm really I can be emotional about it without getting too carried away and I think so this is my uh, this is my perfect writing track basically. This is an urgent appeal from the Disasters Emergency Committee. Hundreds of thousands of people have fled their homes to escape conflict in Ukraine, leaving jobs, belongings and loved ones behind. To donate online, search DEC or text RADIO to 70150 to give £10. Thank you. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. And our featured guest on Bookmark today is Geetha Lodge talking about her psychological thriller, Little Sister. Geetha, we, we kind of touched on this before, really, about how contemporary can you be when you're writing a crime novel? You mentioned the underfunding of the system there, and you do allude to that in the novel. Can you make contemporary political references? I mean, I'm thinking of things like lockdown and COVID, mm. for example. Lockdown and COVID are very interesting. I mean, I feel quite lucky in the sense that I don't have to worry about them just yet because my books are written set a few years ago still. I think it's very interesting working out whether or not to delve into that. There's a really good side to making them current and contemporary and dealing with what's really happening to people in the world. And in fact, one of the elements that is part of my book really is the Me Too movement and you know how much do we believe young women when they make accusations and how all that falls out depending on the woman and all of that side of things. But also I think it would have been quite difficult for me to write quite soon after lockdown or during lockdown about what that was like. I think I would have struggled with it because for me the writing is still a little bit of an escape and I think also I wouldn't have had time to process it I think and to really get to grips with it I would have probably been stuck on you know Lural shortages and the kind of the sort of the very shallow sort of sides of it <laughs> rather than actually kind of the deeper effects of what that does to you I think down the line I might be very interested to incorporate it I'd love to look at how you police during lockdown that is a very fascinating thing to go into and I'm definitely going to be asking my lovely police contact about that and how do you deal with expectations that people might have about when you're addressing a subject because there is a move now and I'm not decrying it at all but if somebody cries rape or abuse because they have not been believed in the past what writer is going to claim a woman has made a false rape accusation for example no it's very difficult because exactly as you say we do know that we've had years and years of real accusations being decried as false which is a huge problem we know that actually rapes get prosecuted in a tiny percentage of cases what we also know is that obviously occasionally it will still happen that any kind of allegation can be false but we'd look at that more in the statistics of the times when someone claims a false theft allegation or a false assault allegation. They're very rare, but we know that they do happen. We, we've seen a few instances recently in the media of, you know, for example, someone recently claiming that they'd been attacked in the street and racially abused, which turned out to actually have been not true. 
but probably actually a fairly reasonable conflagration of an awful lot of incidences over an awful long while, which added up to a feeling of real anger about the situation and feeling they wanted to do something about it and misdirecting it, possibly. It's a very, very complex area. So my feeling was that to deal with it, it needed to be dealt with in a complex fashion that needed to be subtlety and it needed to not be black and white and this is the right thing, this is the wrong thing and to really get into all the various reasons why we do and don't believe people. I mean, that was the biggie for me and letting all the police team have those reasons and air them and grapple with it. And you do sort of challenge the expectations of abuse and who an abuser might be. Absolutely, and I think that's also very important. It's a conversation that two of the detectives have. One of them gets quite angry because... The other is saying, but, you know, he wouldn't fit the profile of a standard abuser. And he's like, and what is that? Because there is no standard abuser. We know that abusers take all sorts. And in fact, the problem is the ones who don't fit a mould are much harder to prosecute because, again, judges and juries don't see them as being an abuser. And of course, the more charming a person is, the more likely they are to talk their way out of it and convince people they're not who they said they are. And that's where it gets extremely difficult. And this case scratches at the skin of a couple of people, a couple of the detectives mm-hmm. investigating it, which I suppose would be a true situation. I mean, that must yeah. happen. I imagine it must be very difficult. I was thinking about this very recently, actually, with the um, Ghislaine Maxwell trial, where potentially it was going to be a mistrial because one of the jurors had themselves been a victim of rape. That was deemed to mean that they couldn't prosecute. And I was thinking, but actually, if you want a balance of people, if you want a real section of humanity, cross-section of humanity, I think you should have someone on that jury who has been you know, a victim of rape. You know, we know a percentage of people have been. It's a reasonable percentage of people. And they probably then are able to present a point of view that the others can't see. That's the same with this team. It's very difficult if you've had any experience in your life of any kind that relates to a case. It's both a problem for you, it makes it very hard for you, but also I think it's also quite necessary because it probably makes it easier for you in some ways to understand elements of what's going on. So bias is a very interesting thing, isn't it? You know, you can, you can never completely remove it. Thank you, Gita. Well, let's, let's look at perhaps bias in the past now and talk to historian Vic Gattrell. Vic is a Life Fellow of Gonville and Keyes College, Cambridge. His research has specialised on the history of crime and punishment and the history of emotions. His book, City of Laughter, Sex and Satire in 18th Century London, won the Wolfson Prize for History and the Penn Hessel Tiltman Prize. Conspiracy on Cato Street, Liberty and Revolution in Regency London came out last month. When I spoke to Vic, I asked him to tell me more about the conspiracy. Well, we're dealing with 200 years ago in Regency London, a city supposedly of great elegance and stability and happiness. But in fact, it's got a powerful, disaffected underclass who've heard everything about the French Revolution, very marginalised, very poor, starving, some of them. And there's a powerful, radical tradition in London that leads to this conspiracy of small groups of extremists, as we'd call them now, who planned to blow up the cabinet with hand grenades, chop off their heads, and to parade their heads through London in the hope that the crowd would flock behind them and achieve a revolution. At the same time, they were going to steal a few cannon from barracks dotted about London and set up a provisional government on the French model. No one said anything about what they were going to do with the king, but obviously the implication was that he'd have his head off too. It's a spectacular conspiracy, but the government knew all about it because it had been infiltrated by spies from the very beginning. 
So these poor guys had every speech, every meeting reported to the Bow Street Police Office and then to the Home Office, which allowed them to catch them red-handed. Wiser men would have realized that they were being spied on, but there was a kind of desperate passion about these guys. So when the day came, the 23rd of February, 1820, it was understood that they and hopefully 40 people would assemble in this tiny, rather battered stable in a tiny muse lane called Cato Street. Remember, there's only scattered gaslights across the city. It's very dark and gloomy. It's bitterly cold. They had to meet at the Edgeway Road tollpike, meet a man to whom they, <laughs> it's almost comic, but sadly comic, to whom they would whisper the password, B-U-T. And this man would reply, T-O-N button. And he would then lead them or direct them to the stable up the Edgeway Road. Anyway, needless to say, the police had already issued arrest warrants and uh, they were surrounded very quickly at eight o'clock when they were poised with their pikes and their blunderbusses on their old pistols to march down to Grosvenor Square and attack the mansion of Lord Harrowby, where the cabinet was supposedly sitting down to its uh, dinner. Of course, the cabinet did no such thing. And the almighty fight that then ensued led to the arrest of nine of the men. A lot of them escaped, but were picked up next day or following days. They were tried. And uh, sure enough, no surprise, the jury was picked and packed and uh, they were sentenced for treason. Ten of them were sentenced to death as traitors. Five of them actually were granted the king's mercy. Their lives would be spared and they would be sent off to Australia to Botany Bay. The other five, though, the leaders, were duly taken up from out onto a wooden scaffold crowd of 100,000 people or so, they were hanged, and then their bodies were taken down and their heads were chopped off and held up by the hangman. That was the end of it. A big conspiracy which would have had profound consequences for the country had it succeeded. Why is it not more known about? All historians and many people know about it, but um, it's been sidelined really because it didn't succeed from the left wing that failed. Therefore, it hardly celebrated the onward march of labour or the making of the English working class. On the right wing, it was a shameful episode, really, from the point of view of government, because it was a corrupt government, a cruel government. The punishment was manipulated. The whole conspiracy was controlled, really, from the top. But more to the point, of course, the right wing didn't want to celebrate anything that exposed the difficulties of living for the poor people of the time. So it's been fairly obliterated, but many years ago in the public record office, I found this extraordinary mountain of spy reports and papers and newspapers on this episode. One box I ordered was heavy and clunky. I tipped it open and out fell three huge foot-long iron files, which were to be inserted in the end of sticks and to serve as pikes to take their guts out, as one of the leaders said. 
the shock of this concrete echo from the past for me was electrifying because historians deal with abstractions and paperwork and words, but not with objects, and made me realise that this was a real-life theatrical, almost cinematic story that I'd tumbled on. Papers, objects, your knowledge have helped to bring this alive in the book. Talking about history, you didn't want it presumably to be stale and dusty. This was something that you wanted to be able to reach out from the past and, and grab people. Well, it is a commercial book, but it's very detailed. But it has to be detailed, really, because I think we're now living in an age where historians respect micro-history, as it's called. The devil lies in the detail, in those pie kits that's in, in the furniture and the rooms and the wives and the children and the meeting places away from the fancy glitz of uh, the Regency that's celebrated in uh, Bridgerton as a and similar things. The real world was speaking to me through these papers and uh, will, I hope, speak to readers who need to get down to the nitty-gritty of how life was lived, how government operated in what is too idealised nowadays, too romanticised. The hard reality was that the majority of the people were leading a stinkingly bad time. Government was harsh in their dealing with them. So the story did unfold also as a kind of cinematic program. It is a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But a lot of the book was about the side issues, the women, the children, the wives, what happened to them, where did they live, what did they think. So the context as well as the story is an essential element in the book. So it's serious history too. And I know as a historian, you deal in facts and what's, what's in front of you, but can you hypothesise as to what would have happened had they been successful? Well, we know what did happen. It was the end of fantasies about revolution for a century. Even the charters who begin to agitate for the vote and the franchise in the 1840s knew that they weren't going to have a chance of a revolution because the reaction would be as violent as it was in 1820. What's also established is the power of the state. The lesson is never forgotten that spies and policemen and what we call now policemen, but in those days soldiers, are the guys who really control the state if it's efficiently managed as a controlling machine, as it was and as it usually is. So in a way, there's a huge continuity between that story and its outcome. A lot of the structures and the inequalities and so on are as visible today as they were then. And the same lessons apply. We learn a great deal about terrorism from my book because these are early terrorists. So the first such people since Guy Fawkes, really, who plan to overthrow the state. And there is a kind of similarity in their personalities and their fantasies and their innocence in a way and the similar attitudes of Islamist terrorists today. They haven't a chance, really, of overthrowing the state. It's got echoes all the way through into the here and now. And Conspiracy on Cato Street, Liberty and Revolution in Regency London by Victor Trell is published by Cambridge University Press. Geetha was saying, sounds a cracking story, doesn't it? Oh, it sounds an amazing story. And also brilliantly told. I just, I was just absolutely taken away with sitting listening to it. It's wonderful, but also incredibly sad. 
the manipulation into basically having the harshest punishment on these men. When you know something is going to happen, you know, you have options. You could have tried to alter it, tried to talk these men round, brought them in quietly and said, look, we know what's going to happen. You need to think about this. And instead of which they took the harshest possible course. And it's a it's a very sad thing, that, isn't it? And the punishment is death, isn't yes. it? I mean, you don't have that here when you're writing your mm-hmm. crime. Have you ever thought about setting a crime novel in perhaps America where, you know, the stakes are super, super high because of the death penalty? Yes. When, when I was 14, my very first book that I ever wrote was, in fact, originally set in America. And then I moved it over here to 1920-ish, I think, when they had capital punishment. I do think it makes it so much more desperate to get the answer right. Not that someone being imprisoned for a long time isn't a huge issue. I'm enormously anti the death penalty. I think it's a terrible thing because of the chance of getting it wrong, but also the fact that the people who almost invariably end up suffering the death penalty are people who have suffered incredibly awful things in their lives and also the poorer because they can't afford the good lawyers. It's a terrible, terrible thing and I would love to see it eradicated. But I think, yes, as you say, it becomes incredibly key if you know that the answer is going to be that they're going to be executed. And of course, you know, in early Agatha Christie novels, that would have been the case in early Dorothy Sayers as well. There's a really, really moving part in, I think it's Busman's Honeymoon, one of the Dorothy Sayers, where unusually you see the day Lord Peter Wimsey knows that the killer that he has brought to justice is going to be hanged and he is devastated. But he needed to do it because this man did it not because he had to, but for money. And it was clear he was going to consider doing it again, that he was just that sort of person. And it's awful. But it's, it's, I thought it was a, such a brilliant note to include in something we so rarely see in these, uh, in these books. Oh, yeah. Sounds interesting. I'll go away and read that one. Uh, well, what's next for you? Well, I'm uh, most of the way through book five in the Jonas Sheen series and uh, having a great time with it. It's actually quite difficult to uh, to write it whilst launching another book, so I'm sort of currently a bit <laughs> frazzled. I'll get back onto it a little bit more when book four is out. But I'm having a great time with it and really driving on particularly the stories of the detectives. And book five also features family a lot as well, which I, I've really enjoyed writing about. So that's a lot of fun. And then I'll be moving on to book six straight afterwards because uh, it's an addiction. It's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a question we ask all our guests on Bookmark. What are you reading at the moment? Oh, I'm in the middle of reading uh, Amor Towles' The Lincoln Highway. I've actually sort of read a few books at the same time as reading it because I've got one book downstairs, one book upstairs at any given moment in time. So I've recently also finished and absolutely loved uh, Gillian McAllister's upcoming one, which is um, Wrong Place, Wrong Time. And that's going to be huge, I think, because it's such a great book. And I'm really enjoying The Lincoln Highway too. It's a sort of slower burn, but really, really good. Thank you, Geetha. We'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music. We've been talking to Geetha Lodge today on Bookmark about her book Little Sister, published by Michael Joseph. Our next show, our featured guest is Guinevere Glassford talking about her novel Privilege. We'll also hear from poet Sarah Natsaganian on her new collection, Lemonade in the Armenian Quarter. And Lizzie Barber will be chatting about her psychological thriller Out of Her Depth. But we'll sign out now, Geetha, with your last choice of music, which is Perfect Symmetry by Tiny Canyons. Why this one? This piece of music means a huge amount to me. It's by my wonderful friend um, Benji Osborne, who we lost far too early back in January. He was a terrific guy, one of the just smartest sparkiest, most brilliant people I've ever met and also a wonderfully talented musician. I would have loved to have heard the final version of this track but even in its current state just as a work in progress it's glorious and it's such a wonderful thing to still be able to hear his voice um, and I just wanted to share it with everybody. In the 